Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for, event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching your swim meet live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. All right, Gary Hall Sr., welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, Brad. Good to, good to see you again and uh, yeah. thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor. Um, listen, I, I got to admit straight off the bat, I know your son well, uh, much better than I know you. Uh, I've, I've known of you and I've, and obviously we've met and talked many times, but I have a great relationship with your son, um, Gary Jr. And uh, man, he was a tough competitor. I'll tell you what, that, that son of a gun was tough to beat, but I loved every minute of it. Well, he was that way, way more than his father. But you know who was another tough competitor? Who's that? Brett Hawk. <laughs> and I have to tell you, because not many people know. I mean, I, I always chuckle when I have like, you know, campers come to the race club camp and they're eight years old. And I say, who's Gary Hall Jr.? And they never heard of him. <laughs> you know, and so, so, you know, we're becoming part of history. As yeah. I'm, I'm ancient history, but... Not many people will realize that when Brett Hawk was at Auburn, you were not not only one of the world's greatest sprinters, but what I admired about you, and not many people would notice this, you had the fastest relay splits of any swimmer at Auburn ever, probably. And that tells me a lot about your character. You were an amazing team person. So Yeah, I did. I, I did have that. So thank you for noticing. I, I was... I loved swimming relays. That was my thing. You know, I love being, I love being there for my teammates. I love fi finding some extra digging deep, you know, when, when we needed it the most. And so that was certainly um, what brought out the best in me. So I appreciate you saying that, but, um, but listen, I want to dig into you a little bit and kind of get, get to know you a little bit more and your career and, and, um, and obviously what you're doing now. Um, just, just tell us off the bat, you know, what are you doing now uh, with the race club? Obviously, uh, where is it today? And, um, you know, what's your role with it? Sure. Um, my role started actually back when Gary Jr. and Mike Bottom got together in 2000. It was actually before it was called the race club. And we brought together, I think, 12 or 13 of the fastest sprinters in the world. That was actually before we were in Florida. We were in, in uh, Phoenix at the time. Uh, Mike called it the world team. I think six were Americans, seven were from other countries. And, and uh, it was just kind of to see what we could do to help swimmers fill their dreams to get to the Olympics or on the podium. Um, had great success. And, and we learned a lot doing that. I was managing at the time. I wasn't coaching. Uh, but I admired Mike. Uh, I loved being around the guys and, and saw how they interact and how they helped each other get better. Uh, we moved that to Florida in 2004. In 2005, I made a huge left turn in my life. I had had 25 years of medicine. I was an eye surgeon, very fulfilling. Um, it was a good run, but I felt like at 55, I, I was young enough to make a left turn in my life and, and start something over. 
And to be honest with you, I was kind of getting tired of medicine. I, I didn't like the way it was going. I didn't mm -hmm. like some of the politics of medicine. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. Leap of faith, right? So I went to Florida, not really understanding what I was going to do next. Um, and then after 2008, Mike took the job at, at Michigan. And a bunch of our assistant coaches took jobs here and there. And mm -hmm. Mary, my wife, looked at me and said, Gary, you're the last man standing. You know, do you want to throw in the cards on the race club and say it was a good, good run? We had a fun time. Or do you want to keep it going? And I was at that point I said no I, I, I really think I, I love teaching I've always loved teaching mm. and I want to I want to take this further but I want to try to do it in a way that that I'd like to do it which is more science-based and really kind of bring the science into the sport and that's what we've tried to do awesome awesome yeah I've seen a ton of videos coming out and I want to touch on a couple uh, later but um, so so it's based or where are you based now so we now have two locations. We have one in Isla Morada, which is where we started it. And uh, that was back in, actually started uh, with Dave Arlick and Gary Jr. in 2003. He founded it and called it the race club. Gary designed our logo, which I love, you know, mm -hmm. he loves, he's, that was his artwork. Um, and then um, in about 2016, uh, I had a nephew who was a Navy SEAL, was killed in Iraq, uh, my brother-in-law's son and my brother-in-law swam on on the 76 olympic team with me mm. and his his oldest son charlie was was killed in in the line of duty in iraq in a very heroic battle we came for his service and decided we would open a second location in coronado fell in love with the island here and uh, i was originally californian so it was kind of coming full circle for mm. me and uh, we did we started that in 2016 and and it's, you know, not as developed as our Florida camp, but it's, it's coming along. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Listen, when I talked to Gary Jr. Um, about, you know, kind of who, who was his inspiration, who was his hero growing up? I mean, he, he always comes back to you first. He refers to you as, as the man that he looked up to that, I mean, he was on the pool deck at Olympic games with you from what I could tell and, and watching you compete. And so, I mean, it was, it was bred into him at a very young age uh, in terms of, you know, who his, who his role model was. Um, is, that, uh, is that something that you, uh, you know, were you aware of uh, as he was a young kid, you know, taking him to all these different meets with you? Yeah, you know, Brad, you know Gary as well as anyone. And you know, he's like way out of the box. He was out of a box as a kid. He was, out of, he was the oldest of our six children um, and arguably the most talented, you know, and uh, he didn't really endear right away to swimming. It wasn't something he just like gravitated to. I was almost to a fault aware of the fact that not only was I an Olympian, the father of an Olympian, or the, the father being Olympian, but his grandfather, who was an NC2A champion swimmer, and his uncle was an Olympian. And it just like, oh boy, you know, that really can, can compound the pressure on this kid. Yeah. So I tried to, sorry, that's my grandson. I tried to diffuse that as much as I could. Uh, but I will say this, and I only say this out of, 
the greatest respect. And, and Gary, I don't know what impact I had on Gary, but I will say this. His grandfather, my father-in-law, my wife's father, mm -hmm. I think was his hero growing up in, in not just in athletics, but I think he was personality closer to him. Mm. And I think he had more of an influence on his success in swimming than I did. And, I, and I'm happy to, to give him the credit. He's no longer alive, passed away at, at the age of 90. But Gary, he, was, he was Gary's hero. Growing up. He had a, and he had an impact on him. He was a, an interesting man and had a huge impact on the sport of swimming, too. He built the, the Keating Natatorium in Cincinnati where, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of great athletic scholarship swimmers have come out of and Olympians world record holders. Then he did the same thing in Phoenix. He built the Phoenix Swim Club there. So I would I would have to give the credit, more of the credit to to my father, Charlie Keating was was a profound influence on Gary. Mm. I was just trying to stay out of the way and, and try not to do any harm. I was trying to be there as a, as a part of the supporting cast. Um, and not not put any more pressure than was already there. You know, there was enough. I didn't have to add any. So I was I was trying to be as as laid back and as as uh, undemanding as I could. The same token, I will tell you that that kid was not going to go to the swimming pool unless I gave him a little nudge. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had to do that. You know, a little yeah. bit. But I tried to tried to do that. And I let the coaches coach. I'd never coached him, never take any credit for coaching. Never spent a minute trying to coach him. He did say that. Yeah. I've heard that many times from him, which is surprising because there's so many, so many parents who don't know anything about swimming and they're always trying to coach their kids. And then here are you former, uh, you know, three-time Olympian world record holder and, and, and telling your kid to go and have fun. It's, uh, it's pretty remarkable in terms of just the way that you, you brought him up and, and, and his success that he's had based on that fact of just going to have fun, man. That was, that was my line. And, and it was, and it worked. And I, and all the parents out there, you are listening. Don't try to coach your kid. Just say, have fun. Let the coach coach. Mm -hmm. If you see something wrong, talk to the coach about it. Or if something you don't like, that's okay. But don't, don't try to be the coach. And the, it's hard enough to be a parent and, you know, don't try to be, well, sometimes you have to be both. There are coaches who are also dad or mom. And that's a tough thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they do that. But what about you? How were you raised? How did you end up uh, becoming this superstar swimmer, uh, Olympian? I mean, you were, you were young. Were you, were you 16 at your first Olympics? I was 16, just turned 17 in Mexico City. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, I was the youngest of three kids, grew up in Orange County, California, a little town called Garden Grove, uh, learned to, to join a team at the age of seven at the Sammy Lee Swimming and Diving School in Anaheim, California. Sammy Lee, by the way, they're making a big documentary about that guy. He was, parents were Korean. He grew up in LA, mm -hmm. little guy, and he, and he ends up winning the Olympic gold medal for the United States in diving oh, wow. in, the, in the 1948 and 52 Olympics. Great story during the era of really a lot of um, racial tension and, and uh, prejudice. He grew up in a tough, tough area of LA and, and ended up rising to become this amazing athlete um, and wins, wins a couple gold medals and, start, and becomes a physician. 
you know. Yeah, yeah cool. Very cool. And he started this club, and, and I was one of the first guys to join the swim team there. And then, hundred years uh, ago. Wow. And then, how did you go from, you know, just starting in the swim team to being where you were at 16? I mean, it must have been fairly rapid in terms of your improvement then. Uh, it was, but it wasn't a, a very smooth course, which is not unusual. I, you know, we all love to have progression of our improvements. We'd all like to see it happen linearly. It, it almost never does, but, and I was no exception. I, I virtually quit the sport when I was 13, mm. had a lot of success early on, set a bunch of national records as a 10 year old, looked like I had a great future. Then I 13, I was a runt. I was small, didn't grow late, you know, bloomer mm. was getting beat badly. Ended up with mono, decided to take a year off and I didn't swim at all. Tried wow. basketball. wasn't very good at that either. Thankfully. <laughs> um, and I came back to swim when I was in high school, primarily through the influence of a guy named John Urbanchuk, who was an amazing coach who just came to California. He was, he had swum at Michigan was a young guy trying to find his way in the coaching uh, field. And I was his first real swimmer when he came here. Um, unfortunately for me uh, at the time, I tried to go to school. I was just entering high school and my parents lived in the neighboring city. It was like one city over from where he was at Anaheim High School. Mm. And my mom rented a, an apartment in Anaheim, just so I could go to school there. Well, she was going to live three miles away from my dad, just so we could fulfill the requirements of living in the school district. And they didn't let me come because of that. And they said, no, you're violating a bunch of rules. Mm. You can't go. You got to go back to the school. Well, the school where I went, it was going to high school. The, the swimming coach was a math teacher. <laughs> he didn't know anything about swimming. <laughs> and I just basically saw my whole Olympic dream go out the window. And I remember I was I actually cried all the way back from Anaheim to my high school, thinking that was the end of my life, my end of my career. Wow. But a new coach had come in that year, a guy named Flip Dar that I'd never met before. He came up from San Diego. And Flip was a Hall of Fame coach. He coached Shirley Babishoff, the Furness brothers, uh, Steve Gregg, um, his John McKinnon, his list of Olympians is long. And I didn't even realize how great a coach he was. So although I didn't get the, the benefit, I had one year of John, who, which, which was great influence in my life. Mm. I didn't get the benefit of him coaching me, but I, I got a, a great coach instead. Oh, nice. And two years later, he said, you know, what, what are your goals? I said, well, I want to make the Olympics. He goes, okay, well, you're going to do it in the IM. I said, well, wait a minute. I don't swim breaststroke. He said, I know that but the IM is the lowest hanging fruit. And he said, that's the slowest event out there. If you want to make the Olympic team, we're picking that event and you're going to learn how to do breaststroke. I never did learn how to do breaststroke, but he made me an im -er. Well, you held the world record, I believe. So you must've done okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, well, it sounds like you had Olympic dreams before you made the Olympics. So what was, what's your first memory of the Olympics before you actually end up going there yourself? You know, I remember when I was nine years old and Sammy Lee was coaching this diver. And then the, the divers, it was a 25-meter pool, which was unusual, but it was deep at one end, shallow at the other. And the divers 
the diving boards were at the deep end, obviously. So when we were swimming, the divers couldn't be diving or we, you know, mm. it'd be a big mess. So we, we ended up, I never saw the divers working out. This kid named Bobby Webster, I think he's only 18 or 19 years old. He goes to, to Rome in 1960 and he wins the gold medal in the Olympics. And when he comes back, it was a long line of, you know, the kids on the swimming team and diving team wanting to shake his hand and, and, and congratulate him. And I got in line and I was nine at the time. And I came up and, and finally he, he let me hold that medal in my hand. I remember how, how heavy it was. Hmm. And I was like, wow. And I looked up and I said, is this all gold? And he said, no, but you know, it's pretty, pretty cool. And um, that was it. I mean, that was, that's what started it for me. And I never let go of that. I mean, it, it almost went out the window a couple of times, never quite extinguished in my mind that maybe someday I could make it. But uh, when it starts, you know, when kids, and we teach that a lot at the race club, you know, you need to put a long-term vision in your head. Where do mm. I, where's this road taking me? Mm. How far do I want to go with this When You know, what would be the end if I could see it right now, where would it be? And uh, so that was, that's when it started for me. So you go, you end up qualifying for the Olympics in 68 in, in Mexico city um, and, and take the silver medal in the, in the 400 AM that, that, I mean, from going a couple of years earlier to creating this event, to, to go into the Olympics and winning the silver medal, that's a, that's a quick turnaround, but that must've been uh, pretty amazing. Hey? It happened fast. I mean, it really happened fast. I was at 14 down and out. And at 16, I'm on the Olympic team. Mm. And, and it, because I had the right coach, the right program, the right teaching, the right inspiration, mm. who made me believe. He made me believe. And, yeah, I worked hard. Uh, you know, at, at the time, I always – it's not unusual, especially like during COVID, for this kind of scenario to happen where people have to do whatever they have to do in order to train. There were their pools were shut down, clubs were closed. So I didn't have a pool. I had a high school pool that was five lanes, three feet at the shallow end, four feet at the deep end, mm. no gutters, flat walls. And, and there were like 10 guys to a lane. There were like 60 people coming out for the swim team. It was like, <laughs> you know, it was no way you get a, a good workout. So I would go in the morning, I would go at school workout. And my coach handed me a three by five card. And he said, here, take this to the Disneyland hotel. I know at six o'clock, they close the pool, hop the fence, and this is going to be your main workout for the day. Mm. And for a year and a half, I did that until he finally got a pool where I could go trained after school. Wow. Uh, usually the janitor would kick me out at some point. but <laughs> It does sound actually a lot like what we've been going through lately, actually. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Pretty yeah. crazy. But um. So were you satisfied with that silver medal or was there, was there something that's, you know, cause I'm, look, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't probably any money in it back then in swimming. There's, there's barely enough money in it now to really survive, you know, but, but back then, you know, you go to Olympics and I'm sure there's probably your, you know, your parents or people around you telling you, right, you've had that experience go, you know, it's time to get a real job now, you know, go out and start working. But how do you end up going, you know, to another Olympics and then beyond that? Well, that one, you know, was, 
I wasn't supposed to be there. I mean, nobody really said there was no pressure on me. That was the beauty of 68 for me because um, the guy that won who beat me by three tens was another American, Charlie Hickox, great swimmer. He was like a senior in college. So the fact that I was there at all, it was, you know, it was great. And, and I didn't feel any pressure, like I had to win. Now I wouldn't say I was happy winning a silver medal either, you know, cause I, I really thought I came really close to winning that race. And if I'd done a couple of things different, I might've, but you know what, I, it left me really hungry. And I remember going to the closing ceremonies and, you know, Munich 70 dude pops up on the big screen. Mm. And I said, you know, that's, that's where I'm going to make it all happen. Because the timing then would have been great. I was junior, almost senior in college. That's where basically swimming careers ended at the time. And I thought I'll be four years stronger. I'll be four years better. Um, that's going to be, you know, my Olympics. And, and I made it and I went there, uh, but it didn't turn out the way I'd hoped. Um, well, so. before you get there, you make the decision to go to Indiana University and swim with the famous Doc Councilman. How did you end up there? And, and I want to kind of know more about Doc Councilman from your point of view, because I, I hear so much about him. I read so much about him. And it seems yeah. like just a remarkable man. Um, but how did you end up in Indiana? Doc had a pretty profound, even though he wasn't one of the coaches of the 68 team, he came and he visited the training camp because he had a lot of Indiana swimmers on that team. Mm. So he, he kept coming back to, you know, help them out. And the coaches, you know, allowed that. They, they wanted Doc. Doc was a great coach. In fact, he'd been the head coach in 64 of the Olympic team. Great success. And even though he wasn't named there, he was kind of always present. Mm. You know? I think there were six high schoolers on the 68 team, on the men's team which wow. you'd never find today. But in those days, it wasn't unusual. Yeah. Five, five of them ended up in Indiana. <laughs> the doc uh, was a good recruiter then. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, a, in an, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a hard seller. He was just because he was so profound. He was you know, he's a funny guy. Had a lot of great qualities. And those of people, the coaches out there were lucky enough to, to know him, know that he had all these amazing personalities that, that made him the great coach. It wasn't just his science that made him a great coach. I still think his sense of humor was one of his best features that he had. He's always making us laugh. Mm. Bad jokes, but he somehow made him funny. I don't know. But he, <laughs> um, he, he had a, a tremendous uh, ability as a psychologist mm. to get the best out of his athletes. He's a fun guy to be around. He was always reading, always inquisitive, always trying to figure things out very science oriented, science based, funny, um, made you feel at ease. He had, a, he had a great ability to really take a team and get the best out of them. Uh, so for me, it came down to really two schools. It was USC, uh, Indiana. I looked at Yale, looked at Princeton. At that time, the swimming level wasn't really up to the same. Mm -hmm. Looked at Stanford, same thing decided you know those are the two big swimming schools of the day and doc won me over um even though i was in california i went back to indiana and and uh the year before me mark spitz had done the same so and we were we were fortunate we won you know while i was there we won four straight nc2a championships we'd won the two before that so we had six straight which was wow a pretty good run 
Yeah, massive run. Is there any anyone from from my from this era that you could compare Doc to? Like, is is there anyone comparable to him these days? Not really. <laughs> he's one of a kind. I mean, really, I, yeah. I he must see... have been because I mean, the impact he's had is just incredible. Like everybody talks about Doc Councilman, so he must have been remarkable. You know, and and not only was he remarkable, but I want to give some kudos to his wife, uh, Marge, who, who passed away. And um, we went back for her funeral. I want to say it was, that was maybe in 2014 or something like that, mm. 13. And uh, she was remark as remarkable as he was. She was, you know, like fully supportive of Doc and everything he did. But she became like the team mother of... Mm all these guys. And, and when I was swimming there, only one of us was from Indiana. So we had 33 swimmers on the team or whatever the number was. 32 of them came from somewhere either out of the state or out of the country. And Mark or, um, Marge would just embrace every single one of us. Open door policy at her house. You know, you couldn't go there on any night of the week or weekend without seeing a few swimmers there. Mm. It was just, they were always there always wow. there wow and and so she and dogs sacrificed in a sense their own family to adopt this family of swimmers mm. um, wow. what an impact hey that's amazing yeah. um now what else was i going to say here i was going to say something about um man what did i, I lost my tr train of thought there for a second just thinking about all the swimmers hanging out at Doc's house. I'm like, I want to go there, <laughs> check it out. But um, by the way, she made the world's best lasagna. I just have to throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> so you were there quite a bit then. That's good. <laughs> um, well, what about Mark Spitz? I mean, uh, what, what was the relationship there? I don't know much about Mark Spitz either, but I just know of him and and obviously his impact in, in swimming. And but it seems like you two were, you know, teammates, roommates, competitors. Um, what, what was that like? An amazing athlete. He was, uh, he was the Michael Phelps of the day. He was just so incredibly talented. Uh, and he actually could swim all four strokes. He didn't really focus on the IM in high school. I think he set the American record in the 200 IM in a high school meet. He never even really swam it. And he never you know, tried to swim because uh, he could do fly and free. So well, backstroke, a lot of people don't realize. I remember in training camp in 68, he did a 50 back faster than all of our 50, you know, backstrokers. Never swam backstroke. Never remember Mark's fist swimming backstroke. The guy had a phenomenal talent. Um, he was, you know, he'd come out of a kind of a rough era in his life where he was, he'd gone from Santa Clara, kind of kicked off the team, went to Arden Hills with Sherm Shavur, uh, was suffering a little bit in self-esteem. He goes to the 68 Olympics expecting to win six gold medals, comes away with a relay gold and really has a bad meet. He, he just didn't swim well at all there. Um, Doc takes this guy and rebuilds him. He just mm. says, you know, we're going we're gonna to rebuild you and, and get you. And he did. It didn't take long. And, you know, his freshman year, Mark won NCAAs, I think, in three events and set American records and was back on track. Uh, Doc, it, Mark was a delicate, very suggestible guy. Um, you know, you think of great swimmers today being pretty resilient. They're pretty 
they got a shield on them. You know, like they're going to deflect a lot of stuff that comes out. Mark wasn't really good at doing that. He would, he'd absorb it. Mm. So Doc had to kind of protect that side of him and not let competitors get to him because they could, they could, you could get to Mark's head pretty easily. And people did. That's what happened in 68, actually. Wow. Uh, so, so Doc was good at kind of shielding him, helping protect him and building his self-esteem and image and getting him, you know, physically ready, you know, for an amazing Olympics in 72. Mark and I would, would room together, but only at the, the big meets. And one of the reasons is we didn't usually, we, at the NC2As, we wouldn't swim the same events. Mm. So we were same team, you know, um, trying to help team win. So he, Doc would put me in three and him in three different events and, and we'd swim a few relays together. But um, we only really crossed paths in competition on one event, and that was a 200 fly. And we swam against each other in Munich, but we actually roomed together in Munich, even though we were competitors. Uh, but we got along. I mean, I always got along with Mark. I thought he was uh, very, very interesting. I smart in a way, not academics. He wasn't like a bookworm smart. He was just some street smart. Um, wow. He was, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't like him because he was a little brash. He would come across as um, self selfish, you know, to a lot of people. They didn't like that about him. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, a lot of the the top athletes come across in can come across in a negative way. You think of the way some people think of Michael Jordan or even Tiger Woods or you know even to an extent Michael Phelps. You know, like they're they're not the most likable people on the team, but they're they're winners as well, and they're they're extremely competitive. So I imagine Mark had some of that going on as well. He did. He did. He, he was, uh, you know, it was interesting because you'd think a guy as good as him would have supreme confidence, but he, he didn't always have that. And he was very easy. Like I said, he was very suggestible mm. and it was very easy to psych out. So if you just looked at him crosswise and said, you know, I don't know. You don't look right. <laughs> in the next, the next day, you know, an hour later, he'd be lying on his back, writhing in pain. You know, from, from you didn't the, try and pull any of that in Munich then for the tuner fly. I uh, no, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. It wasn't my style to do that. And uh, since we were teammates, and we'd always been teammates, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Um, but nor did I try. Uh, I, I actually wanted him to swim well, so I would swim well. You yeah. know, and, uh, but he was better than me. He was a, he was a faster swimmer and beat me pretty handling in that race. And, uh, that was I always tell him, I, you know, I should get some credit for your seven gold medals because I set you up with letting you win the first day. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <doesn't> buy that. <laughs> no, I was gonna say I was gonna say that like there must be part of you that thinks he was good for you. He brought the best out in you as well. I'm sure, you know, you, 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 your competitors do that. The top competitors always bring out the best in you. He did. I remember one day in, in the nationals, 1972 years before the Olympics and we got into the outdoor nationals and I beat him in the tuner fly and I set the world record. So like two weeks later, three weeks later, we're back at school in Indiana and we're, we're doing a kick set. And he looks over me at the kick set and this, you know, I held the world record, beat him in the tuner fly. He didn't like it, but he, 
he looked over me and he said, you know what? The 200 fly time, that world record, that really sucks. <laughs> and it kind of, you know, you could take that two ways. Well, you're talking about a world record now, you know. <laughs> but the truth is, he was right. It wasn't a very fast world record. And he knew he was capable of going way faster than that. And so we ended up upping our game a little bit. Next year, we both went to the nationals and it was like another battle in that same race. Came down to the touch and I had a horrible finish. It was like a Mike Cavick, Michael Phelps kind mm. of finish. And he beat me by a hundredth of a second. And, wow. And, uh, but he, he lowered the world record at least uh, second and a half. And then he ends up dropping it two more, three more, almost three more seconds in the Olympics the next year. So he was brutally honest at times. Was he tough? Was he tough in practice as well? Like, did you two go at each at, at each other in practice? He was tough at times. You wouldn't call that guy the hardest worker that ever lived. He was kind of. Um, I think he was a little in, in some respects like Gary. He kind of knew his body. Yeah. He knew when to push and he knew when to back off. Yeah. And and I think there's a lot of credit to. The, to mm. people like that. I mean, mm. I was like push all the time, mm. sometimes to my own detriment, where some days he wouldn't show up and Doc would, you know, where's Mark, you know? He was resting. He knew he was better off not going to practice that day. Yeah. And uh, he was always trying to wheel and deal, you know, too. He was always trying to do a get out, get out swim. And <laughs> the funny thing was he, he usually would do it. He'd get up and I remember one day in December, like it was the first week of, practice we didn't start practicing in those days until december it was all fall people would be wherever you know you wouldn't see them it's not like today where it goes year round we had like three months two months off so he shows up the first week of practice and and he wants to do a get out swim of course first day of practice you know he doesn't want to go six thousand yard workout so after the warm-up he's you know swimming the first subset and he says doc i want to do a get out swim, 100 fly Doug says, okay, what do you want to do? I, he said, well, how about if I go under 50? The American record's 49.6 at the time. And Doc said, you go under 50, you can get out of here. So he stands up and everybody stops and they're all shivering, sitting on you know, watching him. He's psyching up behind the blocks for five minutes. Gets up and he goes 49.7. Wow. And goes off to the showers where the rest of us were, you know, work out. <laughs> This amazing town. He hadn't been in the water for probably two months, you know. That, uh, you know, I used to honestly I used to be critical of Gary at some point when I was when I was competing against him because I'd heard similar things. And you know, it wasn't until later on that I that I developed a real appreciation for that. Kind of like what you were talking about with Mark. You know, it frustrates you at the time, but then when you look back on it, you're like, that guy just knew himself. He knew his body. Yeah. He knew he knew how to get the best of himself. Do you do you see similarities between Mark Spitz and Gary Hall Jr. in that sense? I do. I do. I think they both had a, a very keen sense of when to push and, and when to back off and you know, when to um, and how to get themselves ready. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know there are a lot of other similarities, but I think in that regard, they, they were very similar. Yeah. Gary was really good at that. I mean, Gary worked. I have to give Gary credit. A lot of people don't think he ever worked. He worked really hard at times. Yeah. Sure. But he also knew when to, you know, not press. Yeah. Um, and, and he knew how to rest his body. I mean, I remember in 
the pan packs. You might've been there 2000. What was it? No, it was uh, 95. Sorry. I'm getting oh, yeah. the wrong decade. No, I wasn't there. No, you weren't there. Okay. Well, anyway, he, he, he roomed with Chad Carbon, who was a great swimmer. And they, they just got off the nationals. They only had a week. And then the, the pan pack started like mm. on Friday, the nationals ended on Sunday. And you know what it's like when you're in the nationals, you're exhausted. Oh yeah. He was like dead. So he went to Atlanta. It was the same Olympic pool they're going to have for the, it was brand new. They were testing it for the pan pack. So Gary goes to bed on Monday and gets up on Thursday. <laughs> I mean, he literally stayed in bed for four or three days. And yeah. Where's Gary? Where's Gary? And he, Chad says, I don't know. He's back at the hotel sleeping. <laughs> and he finally woke up like Rip Van Winkle on Thursday and goes over the pool, gets in the water and feels this. hands like that Skip Kenny, who was one of the coaches, said, Gary, why don't you just swim a 50 just so if you remember how to do it, you know, just... <laughs> And he goes like 24, pushes off a 24, 50 meter freestyle and skips it. I think you're okay. It has one of the best meets of his life, by the way. He ends up yeah. winning four gold medals there. So Yeah, no, honestly, I think I think he was just ahead of his time. Because, uh, you know, that's that's the way we treat sprinters these days is it, it's it's based on recovery. You know, you don't don't go again until you're ready to go again, you know. And, uh, we you know, we come from an era, and I'm sure you were the same, where it was just push 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 as hard as you can um recovery is a huge factor these days and i think gary was just ahead of his time on that and and i'm glad i'm glad he set the standard because we're, we're now following it but so how did you go from a 400 im at your first olympics to 100 fly at, at the third olympics that's that's a pretty nice drop uh, there well you know that one is easy and and uh, somebody said well how can you swim those two events i did them four years apart. Michael Faust did them in the same Olympics. So that's a whole different scenario. But yeah. I was in medical school at the time. And a year before 76, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to give this one more shot. But I only had six months to train. Mm. It wasn't a lot of time. And I'd been out of the water for uh, pretty much for three years. Wow. And uh, so when I came back, I tried to do a little bit of weight work and stuff while I was on call, but I was working like every third night, up all night at the hospital, mm. doing duty at, at internal medicine, you know, really exhausted, couldn't even think about training. Uh, so when I started training, I said, there's no way I'm going to train for more than just a hundred. And there was only 100 I could do. And that was fly. So I wasn't fast enough freestyler to do 100 free and I didn't have a fast enough backstroke. So it was pretty much a process of elimination that I would swim one event. Wow. Uh, swam pretty well too. Ended up getting the bronze medal. It's not a bad, not a bad six month training set there. No, it, it was, um, I was, I, you know, I went in there thinking I could do well. I didn't know how well, uh, but it was a little bit of a rude awakening, you know, after being off swimming that long, I was, I, I went back and started doing doubles and I was a 400 hammer, you know, doing 10, 12 practices a week. So I went back thinking I would just pick up where I left off and got really sick. I couldn't train. I was out for three weeks, bronchitis, uh, went back, did singles. And then I went to the nationals in April thinking, oh, if I just get in the finals, I'll be okay. So I went to the nationals, got tied for 16th 
lost to Summa to get into the banana heat. And it was like, I've got five weeks before the trials to go home and I got to get top three. And I went home and I re really worked hard for about three of those weeks, tapered for two weeks and went back and ended up uh, qualifying second. Um, but fortunately I was part of an American sweep. That was a great team I was on. That was a, maybe the greatest swimming team as a team effort of all time. 1976 US men's team, we won 28 out of 35 possible swimming medals. In wow. the Olympics. Dang, yeah, that, that is a good team. Wow. So, well, you, if you have your Olympic experience and, and then you go off and be a doctor for a while and then come back into, you know, coaching and, and swimming now where you're at with the race club. And so why, why this uh, scientific approach? Why, why are you so attracted to the science of swimming, you think? Uh, you know, it was always my nature, even pre-med, I was a physics major for two years and I went into pre-med. Doc was a huge influence in his scientific approach to the sport. And to be honest, Brett, I feel as if we're in a, a great sport that is a low-tech sport for the technology that's available in the world today, mm. not just in other sports, but in other fields swimming is a little bit in the dark ages mm -hmm. in terms of what we could do and what we could understand what we could and what would could impact the way we, we can help swimmers get faster. And so I, I started with the science interest, but I didn't have the funding and I didn't have the, the, the ability and I didn't really know what technology I wanted to get. And we, and we slowly figured out what we needed and then those technologies made me a much better coach. And I've learned more from about the sport of swimming from the technology than I have from anything else. And, and now we have three or four technologies uh, that not many people have. And if they do have them, they don't really know how to use them. Uh, there's three things that I thought when I started this, brother, were really important to me about the technology. Number yeah. one, technology has to be accurate. In other words, you have to trust it. If it's giving you bad information, it's not going to help, right? It's like computer, bad information in, bad out. So we had to have trick technology that was reproducible that I could trust the data. Second, you had to be able to interpret the data. Not everybody can do that. You had to have to take the time mm. to take the information out of it. What does this mean? And I feel like we're paving new, new territory with that because we're getting a lot of new information that nobody's ever looked at before. And just an example is we're looking at, you know, delta PT, the difference between peak and trough velocities at the lowest and the highest in a stroke cycle, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, or in a kick or, or we're looking at the What are you measuring that with? We use, it's called a velocity meter technology, which measures and it's all synchronized to video. So we have a video image of the swimmer swimming across the screen. And on the top graph, we have velocity at every 0.02 seconds. You know, it's in quick time. So you can click one click forward or backward. You're going 0.02 seconds further or hmm. back in the, in the stroke. And at the bottom, you're looking at acceleration and deceleration, which is really important. And, and nobody's looked at that before. Why is that so important? Well, Turns out your peak acceleration points, right when you hit your peak acceleration, 
is when the maximum propulsion is occurring. So when that happens, not the velocity, velocity will peak later, maybe a 10th of a second later. But if you look at the peak velocity, whatever you did as a swimmer to make that happen, it's already over. So you wanna know exactly what produced that propulsion and why. Same with the drag. If you look at the peak deceleration or the trough, mm. you go to the video and you say, why is this guy decelerating at minus 18 meters per second squared at this moment? What's causing that? That's a little bit, it's fun for me because like, you know, for a kid book, remember Finding Waldo, mm. you got to go to the video and you got to pick out what it is that's causing that to happen. And it may be a, a several factors. It may not just be one. Um, but it's, it's every swimmer is like a puzzle. And what's, what's fascinating to me is just take dolphin kick, for example, and doing this technology. Every single dolphin kick we've looked at is different. They're not two that are the same. And some are substantially different. They're not just a little bit different. They're, they're huge differences in dolphin kicks. The way they're done, the speed, you know, the deceleration, acceleration. The are you talking about like in people? So like if you're comparing two people? Yeah. 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 Wow. And, and we looked at hundreds of these now. And the more we look at, the more we learn. And the more we realize we don't know. And we're trying to explore more. But that's just one technology we yeah. use. We use we're using now another one called the pressure meter where we measure the force of the pulling hand mm. and, and it's linked to the rotation. And it's not the, how far the swimmer rotates, for example, in freestyle and backstroke, it's how fast mm -hmm. they rotate. Yeah. So you need to, to look at the speed of the, or what we call the angular velocity of the, of the swimmer as they turn. And, and how does that affect the pull, the power of their pull? The two are very linked together. And I, coaches have known that, but they just haven't been able to, how do you evaluate that? Are they doing it well? Or are they not doing it well? Well, now we have data, we have metrics that we can compare. I can see how fast Brett Hawk rotates his body and how much force he gets on his hand versus Gary Jr., which we couldn't do, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Why wouldn't uh, USA Swimming be coming to you and saying, hey, we want it, we want it, you to apply your technology to our fastest athletes. I mean, have they done that? Or is that, is that something that's in the works or? You know, I've gone to them and I've offered, but I haven't gotten any response. I mean, I actually, I, I have, and I don't mean to be critical, but I'm not sure they understand the technology yet. I hope they do and the, and the value of it. And until they do, I don't think they will come to me and say, you know, we want to measure our athletes, or we want to look at this, yeah. or we look at that. So, that's so who's coming to you? Who is coming to you now? Who are you who are you working with specifically? You know, all all ranges of abilities and ages. Um, and one thing I did, right, is I checked my ego at the door a long time ago. I love working with Olympians, and I've worked with several really great athletes. And you know, the third part, I said there were three prongs to the test. One is is the, is the technology reliable? Can we mm. trust it? Number two, do I know that I can take the information and weed out the bad stuff that I know there's in there mm -hmm. that's not accurate and take the good stuff? And third, which is probably the most important prong in the whole thing is, can I use this to make the swimmer better? Because if I can't, what's the good? What, what difference does it make? And I think we've been able to answer all three of those with, with the technology, at least so far. 
with the yeah. technology we have. Um, now, I've, I've had a chance to work with some great swimmers, and I, I love doing that. I haven't found a swimmer yet that isn't making mistakes, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. They're all making mistakes. <laughs> no so yeah. And I, I, like, I love the ability to, to find them, you know, because you can't see them from the deck. You'd be the greatest coach in the world. I can't see what's going on from the deck. Now, I, that's what I'm looking for, but yeah. I still don't see it. Yeah. It happens too fast. Yeah, absolutely. It does. I, I love the, I love the slow motion feature on iPhones these days. I mean, just even that simple technology of just slowing things down. I'm like, cause it's, everything's happening way too fast, but uh, how do people get in contact with you then? You know, if they want to work with you, if they want to work with the race club, if they want to start using this technology, what's the best way for them to contact you? Go to the raceclub.com and uh, you can find us there. Um, if you want to email me or uh, directly, it's Gary Senior, G-A-R-Y-S-R, at theraceclub.com. Come straight to me. We're a small company, so you don't have to go through many people to get to me. And I give my uh, email out freely to anybody that wants to contact me. We have a news feed on our, on our website. If people want to ask questions, they can go there. Um, but the best thing is just, uh, I mean, we really do... Three things. We have our camps, which we run maybe 10 times a year, and we do them only in two locations. We don't really go to other locations and do them because we have a lot of, we have a lot of technology. We can't bring that with us. So yeah. we like to do it here. Mm-hmm. Um, we do the testing during those if they want to have it. And there's there four different tests that we do. They're all important. They're all different. And they all give us different information, all, all of which is, is really useful. Then we have private instructions where people can't make the camp and they want to come and they just want to get a private lesson with Devin Murphy, who's our head coach, or me. They can set that up whenever they want. And we have a subscription. And we, we've been doing videos now for, well, my son, Richard, I think you know Rich, is, yeah. is a great swimmer at Cal, uh, is a videographer and, and he produces our video. And, and uh, uh, so we do that online. If can't afford to come to us for camp or privates and you can sign up for a subscription. And we have two different lanes, lane two, lane three, actually three different lanes. We have lane two, lane three and lane four. Lane four is where we actually do online coaching, which has been really helpful during COVID. Yeah, People don't have access to pools or don't have coach or they don't have some piece of their training is missing and we help, help supply that. Yeah. Well, listen, I love it. I love what you're doing for the swimming community. Um, I, I actually watched before you jumped online here, I was watching your, your video on your three laws, the laws of motion, the laws of drag and the law of inertia. I love that video. I learned so much from that great video. Thank you. Um, but yeah, you got a lot of great stuff out there. So I, I recommend people look it up and get in contact with you. You're doing great work. So um, enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more too. So I appreciate you sharing some of that story today. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it. Always been a big fan of yours. And uh, I, by the way, you do a great job on these podcasts. I really enjoy listening to them and, and you get great guests on. So Thanks. present, present company excluded. <laughs> well, Gary senior, I appreciate it. You've been awesome. Thanks a lot. And then uh, we'll catch up soon. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Thanks, Brett. Bye.